Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the Habits Habit Podcast. This is a podcast about habits, happiness and human behaviour. And my guest this week is just such an interesting guy. I know you're going to love this interview. Uh, If you've heard um, Pete on the radio before, he always has a very fascinating insight into human behaviour and particularly, if I could call it, uh, mob behaviour. So behaviour of society as general. He's from the ESRI's Behavioural Lab. Uh, He's a behavioural economist and he's just just fascinating um, uh, and so uh, it's a very timely interview um, because this was recorded uh, well look sure we've been in lockdown so long but particularly um, there's a lot of questions about how we're failing uh, in terms of minding our behaviour in lockdown. Um, so as always uh, if you enjoy the podcast please do uh, leave a review, leave a comment look at I'm not going to you know get all bolshy but there have been over 4,000 downloads and two of you who have uh, left uh, reviews which reviews were very nice by the way and um, so please uh, it helps the algorithm it helps more people find this podcast it helps spread the word um, and I would be eternally grateful well maybe not eternally I'll be grateful for a while at least so let's get into it this is Dr Pete Lund behavioral economist on why we do what we do it's a very basic starting point and it occurred to me after hearing you on the radio a million billion times no one ever really seems to ask you what exactly it is a behavioral economist is or the behavioral research lab or how do you get to be what you are yes so i suppose behavioral science is an umbrella term that covers large swathes of academia it's primarily the rebranding of psychology to be honest psychologists haven't been taken seriously by particularly politicians and policymakers of different sorts for years And they've discovered that by calling themselves behavioral scientists, they get taken more seriously. And I'm only being slightly flippant there. This really is true. Tell a politician that you're a psychologist and they'll sort of look you up. That means you're a boffin who thinks you understand people. How could you understand people as well as me who goes to the trouble of being elected? That's the way a politician will think about somebody who comes up and says, I'm a psychologist. And suddenly, if you instead say, I'm a behavioral scientist, you get looked at completely differently. And it's partly the S word, because, of course, people who are non-scientists are scared of what scientists might know and how they go about things. But it's partly just the need to rebrand psychology because it's got a fairly checkered history, particularly in terms of its practical application. So a lot of it is that. But there are also sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists and increasingly economists who come under the umbrella of behavioral science. And behavioral economics is that section of economics that takes behavioral science or psychology seriously and indeed the definition of behavioral economics is the application of psychological insights to economic analysis so it's, it's basically economists that take psychology seriously so in in that sense i guess that's how i study behavior but you can study behavior from multiple angles i mean my primary interest is in decision making it's how we make economic decisions and i talk about that very broadly because I include in that things like decisions that have health outcomes because wherever you are trading off your current desires against your long-term health consequences or other people's long-term health consequences in the context of the COVID pandemic, you're effectively engaging in a process of allocating resources or trading one thing off against another. There is something fundamentally economic about the decision that you're making. Um, uh, okay, and, and is it always a decision? From my point of view and my kind of research, and I use that term very loosely because I'm certainly not a scientist or a psychologist or anything of the sort, people would tend to tell you that a, a huge proportion of our daily actions, and I, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, are either habitual or automatic or subconscious. Are you always talking about conscious decisions? I'm I, thinking this is what I'm going to do. That's a great question. And I absolutely agree with it fundamentally. So I just walk to the bottom of my stairs to let my kids in at the front door. Most of the time when I walk down the stairs, I turn left and go into the kitchen. Instead, I went straight on and went to the front door. I didn't have to think about that. I didn't have to do any cognitive conscious processing that I was aware of to make that decision. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I just went straight on and went to the front door because I knew that's what I wanted to do. So did I make a decision there or not? That depends what you mean to a decision scientist i did make a decision there because i had alternatives and i chose one did i feel like i chose one or that i evaluated those alternatives no but did part of my brain do that yes it was just a completely subconscious act 
So what is a decision and what isn't a decision? We use the term ambiguously. A decision is any situation where you have multiple alternatives and you select one. I think that is almost by definition a decision. Yet, as you rightly say, we make decisions all the time that are almost entirely automatic. And many of the decisions I study are not automatic. In fact, the large majority of them are not. They're conscious decisions that people are making. And yet, even the conscious decisions have strong, what you might call unconscious elements or things that might influence them or bias them or change them or alter motivation that you might not be aware of, even if you are weighing things up in your mind that you are aware of. So the world of psychology is extremely rich and you're right, decisions vary in how automatic they are. Can I ask a, a, a kind of, I should say, and I don't know whether this is an insight into my psyche, this conversation is very unlikely to follow a linear pattern because uh, it's just the nature of it that I, I, thoughts are going to occur to me as you're talking. One of the things that I realized in relatively recent times is that I know very little about established biases or biases, whatever the, the correct plural is. And I'm just, it's starting to become very interesting to me. Why don't I know this stuff? If it has such a fundamental impact on the quality of my decisions, I'm a 40-year-old, reasonably well-educated person. How do I not know this stuff? That's a great question because it is a sub-discipline of psychology, which is itself a very large discipline that is not taught to almost anybody prior to university. You can do psychology at school, a few people can. But the world of psychology, and by psychology here, I'm not even including branches of psychology that include things like psychotherapy and so on. I'm really talking about the harder science end of experimental psychology. There are so many phenomena that, that are studied in that, from personality through to memory, through to perception. Decision-making is one small branch of what is already a large experimental science that we don't teach at all at school. So people are very unaware of it. And I think the other thing to understand is that it's made huge strides in the last, let's say, three to four decades. So there was very little study of decision making undertaken up until sometime around the 70s and 80s. And it really took off after that, but particularly in the last 20 years or so. So it's not hugely surprising that people, very educated people, aren't particularly aware of it. It takes a long time for uh, science to permeate society. And that's particularly true because science has also, during that period, expanded so much. There are huge and important areas of health sciences and environmental sciences and so on that have also expanded during that period and entered the public consciousness. So I guess that's why. And I suppose, thinking about it logically, if I was trying to know everything I could know about how I do everything I do, it'd be information overload. You, you couldn't function. And maybe that's why it is broken down into small little chunks for people to study. Well, it's one of the reasons I love libraries, to be honest. I, I find going into a, an academic library to be this hugely humbling experience where I look at these rows and rows of journals and I know that I can pull any one of them off the shelf and I would find, sure, some of the articles wouldn't be great, but there'd be something in there that I'd be really interested in and I'd really want to read and find out about. And yet the shelf after shelf of them. I researched a book a few years ago where I went, I was living in Chicago at the time, and I went into, there's a fantastic public library there, the Harold Washington Public Library in Chicago, where I just went in and I had time because my partner was working and I wasn't and I was researching a book and I just had time to delve into journals going back on issues I was interested in to the 1930s, the 1920s, and even a little bit further back. And I was finding all sorts of writing and great thoughts in there that, you know, were relevant to the work I do now, but that I hadn't even heard of, I hadn't come across in the textbooks. I mean, the world of ideas is so vast. And in a way, there's something reassuring about that, as well as somewhat humbling, I think. Yeah, I, it, in, in habitual terms, it's something that I've found from a lot of very successful people that they talk about this being endlessly curious. That's one of the keys to success, to, to want to know more about anything, really. I, th I think that's true, but I, I also think you have to be very questioning. Because the world of ideas is so vast, and because we're always so terrified about missing things and getting things wrong, too many of us read all the same sources and the same books. One of the things that's fascinating about becoming genuinely specialist in an area is you realize how distorted the mainstream view of your area is 
from the perspective that you'll adopt if you genuinely take a broader look at it and you look at it from different perspectives and read the people who are off mainstream and really think about what they have to say. Yeah, I agree with you, but it takes a little more even than curiosity or the, or the desire to learn. I think the way you go about it, being willing to be different and follow different threads of authors and thinkers and so on, and accept that will mean that you can't be a completely impartial or objective observer. You're going to be led by the people who you read, but the importance of reading people who are different from the other people that are being read is a very important part of it too. From a science point of view, absolutely, I get that. But I also then suspect that is a big problem for Joe Public, for me. So, for example, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear is a huge uh, best-selling book that loads of just people I know have read about habits. But that might be the only book they read. So as far as they're concerned, that's how habits work. Full stop, capital letter, thank you and good night. Is that the kind of problem you're talking about that in the scientific community or in general for, for the rest of us? That, that's exactly the kind of problem that I'm talking about. So in my particular area, the two legends, if you like, of my area are Kahneman and Tversky. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. The two of them collaborated. Tversky would have won it too, but it's not awarded posthumously. And unfortunately, he died young. And so this is for thinking fast and slow, was it? Or, you know, this is sorry, well, the Daniel author, Kahneman it's the author wrote who thinking, wrote that. It's, no, he didn't get the prize for it. Yeah, he wrote that 10 years later. So that, that was written in, I think, 2012. He won the Nobel Prize way back in 2002 and primarily for work that was actually done in the 1970s. These two really started behavioral economics proper. You can see the kind of antecedents of behavioral economics going way back to Adam Smith if you want to. But the people who really started behavioral economics were Kahneman and Tversky. And what they did was they took basic skills, what we would now consider basic skills from experimental psychology, but applied them to economic decisions in a way that no one had done before and just produced these lovely kind of elegant experiments that showed that the way people took economic decisions was not the way economists thought. And consequently, behavioral economics was born. Now, that was a massive contribution. And I remember reading Kahneman and Tversky as an undergraduate and I still go back and consult some of their papers now and I teach them and so on but the perspective that Kahneman and Tversky brought to behavioral economics is too dominant actually and the kind of branch of American behavioral economics that got produced is only one way of thinking about behavioral economics there are other ways of thinking about it and I think we think about it far too narrowly but that's the one that has most entered the public consciousness now here's a thing right it's already entered your speech to me in this conversation because you centered what you had to say about what you wish you knew more about and that you thought how come you hadn't known it the word you used was bias yeah and that comes straight from Kahneman and Tversky who considered departures from what was orthodox economic thinking which is that people essentially pursue their own self-interest rationally and that you can study biases from that that's the way they phrased it. that was what Kahneman and Tversky did and that has entered consciousness as being very identified with my field and my field is all about behavioral biases or cognitive biases or biases in decision making now actually i don't agree with that perspective uh, and yet it's the dominant perspective in my discipline because it came from the people who made the really big breakthroughs it was the way they thought about it and of course it's a very useful insight to know that people depart from orthodox economic theory but viewing it as a bias is something i actually think is a mistake how should we be viewing it? What, what is your view is what I'm asking. Okay, so this becomes a deep subject, but the reason I don't agree with it is because it holds up the orthodox economic way of thinking as being the right way to do it, as having normative power, that anything that is, departs from that is somehow a bias. In other words, we'd be better off if we didn't have it. And I don't actually think that's true. I think many of the biases that Kahneman and Tversky identified are actually highly adaptive to the very complex environments that humans exist in. And although they appear to be biases in some of the contexts, they are actually very important mechanisms of decision making. So let me give you a really simple example. There are loads and loads of people who do not switch financial products because they are scared of doing so. They're not, one of the reasons that is they're not very familiar with financial products and they know that the people who are selling them to them are, and that makes them scared. So even though they know that they could probably save hundreds and maybe even thousands of euros by switching their mortgage, let's say, 
they have a kind of principle in them which says if I'm dealing with something I'm not very familiar with and makes me feel uncomfortable about my own competence and somebody I'm dealing with somebody who is competent in it I fight shy of that I don't like doing it and I back off from it now according to the world of Kahneman Tversky that's a bias it's actually called ambiguity aversion in the technical language and it's considered to be a bias from what would be normative good thinking but I don't think it's a bias at all I think it's a psychological phenomenon it's absolutely rational in the sense of being adaptive it generally in life makes huge sense to fight shy of negotiating and doing business with people who know more about what you're doing business with them than you do <laughs> it's a very smart thing to do actually so that's what i mean that what it does is it makes my field look like what we study is mistakes but actually I'm a psychologist, I'm a behavioral economist, but I originally trained in psychology. Actually, I always wanted to look at how we did things from trying to understand why the system is geared the way it is. Because if you understand why the system is geared the way it is, you might then know the environments in which the system is going to be successful and the environments in which the system is going to be less successful. So you might be able to identify mistakes, genuine mistakes, better if you really understand why the system is adapted to be where it is. But if you assume from where go that the system is biased, you can't reach that. You, you don't view it with the right perspective, in my view. Now, I'm not the only person who thinks this. This is the primary insight of the, of the alternative school of decision-making to Kahneman and Tversky, which is mostly driven by some very good German psychologists. And I would, on balance, lean more towards them than to Kahneman and Tversky. But the large majority of people who've read about behavioral economics, read popular books about behavioral economics, they view the whole thing as being about biases and mistakes, um, not about adaptive psychological mechanisms that work well in some contexts and not so well in others. Uh, you're wrecking things for me now, Pete. I was pretty sure I knew how this whole thing worked. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I read free economics twice, so I'm, I'm up on it. Um, wh one of the things you said to me, uh, or as you were talking there, is something um, that has always bothered me, if you like, about science generally. Like some, I think people can get um, overloaded with it in the sense that you open the newspaper one day and it says drinking a glass of red wine is good for you. And you open the newspaper the next day and another study is saying drinking a glass of red wine a day will kill you 10 years earlier or it'll, it's good for your liver, but it's bad for your heart. So it, you never seem to get a very clear, here's what you should do, which it strikes me that part for a large part of the sheep type humans, we just want to know what are we supposed to do and we'll go do it. I, I agree. And as somebody who spent my whole working life either in science or in the media, and always working at the interface between the two, it is one of the biggest problems we have with science, is that there is an idea that it has some kind of fundamental access to truth or correctness or rigour, and we don't fully understand that relationship in the way that we need to. So that is at its worst. I remember having rows with people in the BBC newsroom about this, where you would have reporters or producers who would write scripts where they would use the expression scientists say. You know, scientists say that red wine is good for you, you know, which promotes this whole kind of idea that there is a body of science out there that spits out right answers. And the truth of the matter is that almost all scientific progress that is made begins with an argument, an alternative theory that the majority of scientists don't agree with that ends up turning out to have more evidence in its favour and turning out to be a good theory. So science is, an, is a process of changing your mind. Now that does mean that there are fundamental truths and laws that we've changed our minds to and then not change now for a very long time. We accept them as being true. We accept them as being solid theories. But the process of doing science is a process of changing your mind. That's what it is. And consequently, scientific output is always changing. That's what these huge piles of journals in the libraries are all about. They're all about providing evidence to change your mind. So I think we fundamentally fail to understand the scientific process. It is an accumulation of theories and laws and facts that are true, but that actually is a smaller part of it. 
than the part of the process which is about building that and changing your mind and changing your perspective and altering the weight of evidence that's what the majority of science is about and i think in the modern world we've come to realize that more partly because of so much work is now done that has health or environmental or economic outcomes where as you rightly say we hear it go one way in one study and we hear it go another way in the study welcome to the process of science the public has finally begun waking up to the idea that actually that's what all science is and that's even true of theoretical physics and going back far enough the science is a process of changing your mind but from a well from your field then from human behavioral economics do you have any sense of how that sits with us? As a normal person, I'm designating myself normal per- person for the purposes of this chat, it feels uncomfortable to not have a, a North Star or to feel that I can trust this is right, that it, it, I'm not going to do this for a year and then find out well, a year what, what from now. Yeah. So what it means is some science is absolutely trustworthy and is right. So let me give you an example from psychology. It genuinely is true that the law of seven plus or minus two which undergraduates in psychology are all taught which basically says your short-term memory can hold about seven things plus or minus two so people with a really good short-term memory can maybe hold nine objects in their memory at the same time people with a less good memory maybe five so if i give you a list of digits and you have to say them straight back to me that's roughly how many you can do right and that's a very solid piece of science we've had it for 70 years now it's not going to change. It's experimentally just true across multiple, all human cultures. In fact, that's what your short-term memory is. The memory expert can learn tricks so that they can memorize 120 digits, but they're doing it by tricks. Hmm. Ordinary people can remember essentially seven plus or minus two. So there we are. That's something that we know that is essentially a kind of established psychological fact, an empirical fact. And there's plenty of theories trying to explain it too. Now, some science is like that there are other things that are much more up for grabs because it hasn't been decided one way or the other or because it's fairly new and we can't be 100% sure yet. We recently published a paper, which I think, I've run a whole series of experiments, I think fairly conclusively proves that when you're making a decision and you have to weigh up lots of factors that trade off against each other, that basically you can only trade off about three or four things in any one decision. And that's even someone who's pretty smart. Most people are only trading off at most two or three things in a decision. And anything more than about three or four, you can't do. Now, I don't know that's true. I think it's true. And I think our experiments are pretty good at providing evidence for that. But somebody could come along with a counter experiment and show me an example where they changed the way we did it, where uh, they produce a particularly clever manipulation of the experiment, or they use a different kind of subject matter, or there's something different about what they do, where they say, here, look, here's a decision where people have actually taken six or seven factors into account in the decision, and we can show that they've managed to do that and juggle them all and trade them off and produce a decision. So I might be wrong. So you get this kind of spectrum from stuff that's really well established where the empirical evidence is really solid all the way to stuff that is novel where somebody's conjecturing something, but any day they could be proved to be wrong. And there's a simple example that relates to your red wine thing. We are absolutely damn well sure now that smoking kills you. We are less sure with red wine, although increasingly the evidence doesn't look great for those of us who enjoy it. <laughs> don't worry, I'll edit this bit out, Pete. We're not, people don't need to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if you're thinking about this as I am in terms of the interaction between, say, subconscious habits uh, and uh, deliberate conscious decisions, I suppose what I'm slightly interested in is that to take advantage of how habits work, there has to be a deliberate decision at the start to say, I want to develop this habit and here's how I'm going to go about doing it. Um, or certainly that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to decide what will be the best habits that will help me achieve certain goals or outcomes. And then how can I design my life or my environment or my whatever to facilitate that? So even though the end habit will hopefully end up being uh, subconscious or not, there is quite a lot of conscious decision-making going on, certainly at the start. And so that's where I'm interested in how we make the wrong decision. Or I, I could now think all these great conscious thoughts uh, and think I'm going on the right track completely and be setting myself off in the wrong direction. And the smoking one is a really obvious one. Like I cannot, cannot 
get my head around how or why a doctor or a nurse would be a smoker. I just reconcile it. If anybody knows this is not a good idea, it's you. So why do they do it? Discuss, Pete. <laughs> well, why doctors or nurses smoke? I'm well, nursing. I suppose it's, it's, it's on, on a bigger scale. As a human, uh, as the species, why do we do things that we know are bad for us? It's a really good question, and I think there are multiple answers to it. One of them is just the straightforward trade-off between our long-term benefit and our short-term pleasure and desires. I strongly suspect that a doctor who smokes fundamentally does it, obviously because they're addicted, but why did they even start doing it, and why might somebody do that? The answer is probably because they're one of those people who happens to think that smoking just somewhere deep down subconsciously is just cool. And in the immediate term, that's what they want to do and what they want to look like, or because they've had enough of them that it just makes them relax, that it's a signal to their body just go, oh, end of that day or end of that meeting, or you know, I can nip outside and take a break here. And it's this signal to their body that just makes them go, I've done that now. So there's a kind of short term benefit or gain that is, is up against a long term health goal. Now, one of the things we know as behavioral scientists who've looked at these kind of problems um, is that people differ quite markedly, actually, in their ability to pursue longer term goals at the expense of those kind of short term gains and pleasures. Um, Some people are substantially more impulsive than others. Some people have substantially more willpower than others. Different people trade off long term goals against short term gains in different ways. It's quite hard for the people who struggle with this stuff to change their behavior. It can be done, but it's really quite hard. Why is there a simple, I suspect there's not, is there a simple reason why it's hard to change our behaviors? (laughs) Jeez, I I would get a Nobel Prize if I could answer that one. Is there a simple, no, that's part of the issue here. Part of the issue is there are so many factors and so many contextual factors involved. We tend to think of the decision in a very individualistic way. It's partly our culture and it's partly the way the science has developed. The the original theories and ideas were very individualistic in nature. So it isn't the case that we sit down and do a cost-benefit analysis where we do trade off the future against the present and try to make a decision and fight with ourselves. That's a model that one can impose, if you like, a kind of idea that we're doing this sort of little miniature self-obsessed cost-benefit analysis. Actually, that isn't the way it works at all because a large proportion of these decisions are actually taken in a social context, even when you do them on your own. So how you're perceived by others matters a huge amount. How you perceive your own social status and where you'd like to be in society is featuring in all of these decisions as well. And then there are environmental concerns around you as well what's the makeup of the environment that you're currently in and by environment i'm using the environment literally in the context of what is surrounding you what's the room you're in what's the space you're in what's the immediate outside space all of these things feeding into the decisions we're in this incredibly complex and rich environment and if that environment changes on you however strong your own willpower and decision making is it can make life really difficult and the best example i can think of for that is the obesity crisis the obesity crisis has not happened because individuals suddenly decided that they would rather eat much more consume far more calories and put on weight what happened was the environment in which they were all fighting the same battles between their weight and their desire to eat changed where suddenly you even went to fill the car up with petrol and you were faced with snacks and sweets and crisps while you were standing in the line. Food became way cheaper, the cost of a calorie more than halved over a period of 30 or 40 years. Convenience, availability, marketing, all of this stuff changed in the environment and made the decision-making environment much harder for people. So there are so many different answers to the questions of why is it so difficult but there's a social context and environmental context as well as all of those individual factors i was talking about previously well uh, just to take um two examples from what you said there so when you go to um buy petrol and you arrive to pay for it and there's things on special offer uh, as you walk past or right beside it which you know is obviously designed to try and get you to buy them is there a kind of I mean, from the retailer's point of view, presumably there is a behavioral economist somewhere telling them 
this is put this here and do this and people will buy more of it. Or, or I'm not saying you're to blame, but it is that kind of, because people seem to be quite well aware of, for example, that supermarkets are laid out in a specific way to take advantage of us, if you want to call it that. Or there, there's a lot of thought and science that goes into how a supermarket is laid out. And I think people get that. But are, can we not then use the same science to inform ourselves so that we don't fall prey to that so we go straight to the back or so we take a circuitous route or whatever unfortunately not so there's a couple of things there one of the one of the things that's interesting actually is that very few behavioral economists work for retailers or for food companies there are a few but very few almost all of the behavioral economists actually work and produce science for the governments and the regulators that are trying to help people to eat less and we should be glad that they do the reason for that i guess is because you know they're scientists and they're not particularly interested in making money i try not to think about how much money i could make if i went into marketing but it's a lot and so <laughs> damn so you we, we... morals damn you <laughs> well i tell you it's it's i mean it, one, one can think of that as being a moral position but from my point of view it's got far more to do i suspect with curiosity the, the scientific challenge to help people in this, this environment is so much greater than the scientific challenge of selling grab bags. That's easy. I could sell grab bags. I know I could. I'd just be doing it for the money. But solving the problem that grab bags are causing is a much, much more interesting scientific problem. And that comes to the second part of what you said, because unfortunately, being aware of this doesn't make you immune. Part of the problem with the environment we've created is it makes you hungry. So previously you would have walked in and bought the petrol and hunger wouldn't have crossed your mind. Now you walk in, you're surrounded by images and smells and so on that immediately make you hungry. And it isn't just the smells, the images, just the packets being there make you feel hungry. So even if you do understand the, the theories and the reasons why it's laid out that way, your consciousness can only do so much in the face of your hunger. You, it immediately puts a trade-off in front of you saying, actually, I shouldn't eat now because I had a meal only two hours ago. I really don't need a chocolate bar or a bag of crisps versus the fact that part of your body and your brain are now saying, oh, have the Snickers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that knowledge of how that works doesn't help. Um, I, sorry, I just, so, something about that just... That's depressing for a start, but so, so, <laughs> so what's the solution? Or it, I don't even know what question I want to ask to follow that, to be honest, but there must be, you, we can't be helpless about it, can we? No, and, you know, but it's a big task to try and find a solution. One can get terribly draconian about it, which is, of course, in the end, what we did with smoking. What we did with smoking was make it, and you know that battle's not won by any stretch of the imagination, but we're doing much better than we used to, and that's primarily been done with quite draconian measures, making it harder to purchase it, sticking it out of sight, campaigns to make it socially unacceptable. It was a huge public information campaign and regulatory architecture that was produced to try to stop people smoking, get them smoking less. Really difficult to do. Are we going to end up taking the food industry on to that degree? Good question. Don't know the answer to it, but to some extent, yes, we've got to because of the damage that it's doing. But we probably won't get as draconian as we will with smoking so what will we do and there are plenty of solutions we can improve the way food is packaged and the signaling that surrounds it so that even if it does make you feel hungry when you go into the garage you might be more likely to pick a healthier option that you eat less of so that might be possible too Certainly there are things we can do in the space of things like portion size and salt content. So there's all sorts of things we can do to try and improve the environment that aren't quite that draconian. And there are options that we can put in front of people to make them make better and healthier choices that aren't so draconian. But we may end up actually regulating food much more strongly than we do now. It'll be really interesting to see where it gets to because ultimately the science may show that freedom of choice if we don't constrain choice if we leave it purely to free choice that the health consequences are just going to be too great because people can't cope with the environment that we've put them in now i don't know whether that's true but there are plenty of behavioral scientists who believe it and where the science ultimately ends up is going to be a very interesting question whatever we do we've got to try and change the environment and take the food industry on the question is just with how bigger equipment i mean the the one of the things that i'm interested in what you said just a little while ago was about um, the social pressure. I, I'm interested in this in, I now have flipped my view on peer pressure, uh, whereas I always would have associated peer pressure as being a negative thing. 
But now you, what you hear a lot of is surround yourself with the right people and pick the right people and don't let negative people into your life. And this kind of, that would be the kind of pop psychology wellness approach to it. Um, but I think there's a positive peer pressure that if you're in the right environment, you will make better choices. And I'll give you just my perfect example, which is uh, I moved job three years ago and I moved into a very healthy office. They're all really health conscious. Uh, before I'd arrived, they'd made a decision that if they were doing in-office training or lunchtime things, there'd be no sandwiches. There'd only be salads. This kind of carry on. So I arrived and I have a terrible diet. It's one of the things that I'm trying to get a hold on in terms of my decisions and my habits and whatever else. And there's a Burger King right around the corner from us. And typically that would be where I would head straight to. But in three years, I'd never been to Burger King. I was always going and buying salads because I think you couldn't, I think people would look at you as if you had two heads if you came back into our office with a Burger King for lunch. Just They just don't do it. So how much is it important to pick the right people or pick the right tribe or whatever else it is to help you make better decisions? It is certainly extremely helpful. Your example, I would be aware of lots of data that suggest that people adapt to their social environments and that being surrounded by other people who behave differently is one of the things that will drive your behavior. So your example, there's a load of evidence to suggest uh, that it's not a one-off, it's not anecdotal, it's in line with behavioral evidence. I think peer pressure gets a bad rap generally. Here's one way that's true. People are much less pleasant online than they are in person. And one of the reasons that people can behave as badly online as they do is because of the lack of peer pressure. It's because they can't see the impact that their behavior is having on those around them. And there aren't other people around them setting a good example. So when they're on their own and they're only interfacing with a computer, they tend to become more selfish. They tend to become less generous. They tend to be less sensitive to other people's feeling. We've all got on the end of emails from people we thought we knew where we can't believe they've written what they've written. That's peer pressure in action. Peer pressure is incredibly important. We're highly sensitive to the feedback of other people around us, even the imagined feedback of other people around us. And we pick up really subtle changes in people's facial expression. So even if you do go and buy that Burger King and bring it into the office, you'd be hyper-conscious of whether anyone else could smell it off you, whether people were pulling a funny expression. That's the way we are as social creatures and human beings. And a lot of that peer pressure is very positive. It's the stuff that keeps us in line. It's the stuff that makes us do things and favors for other people and trade those favors. And we're all better off as a result and that kind of thing. Now, of course, you know, peer pressure can also drive the negative side of us, whether that's peer pressure to be a bully in the playground, whether it's peer pressure to take drugs, whether it's peer pressure to whatever it is, peer pressure that can have some negative consequences. That's what we often think of when we talk about peer pressure. And part of the reason for that is because the peer pressure that does so much good is so subconscious, so automatic. Children as young as four or five socially cooperate really strongly and there's good empirical evidence to show that we teach that to our kids and that's inbuilt incredibly young but we just take it for granted whereas the peer pressure we encounter later in life that has some negative consequences is uh, very conscious and is very salient to us and is the focus of a lot of politics so that's where peer pressure tends to end up. So taking that into today then and coronavirus is there a tipping point almost where let's just take masks as just a, a theoretical example there. I'm, I'm not saying I'm right about this, but it reaches a point where uh, no one's wearing a mask. No one's wearing a mask. You think, oh, I'm not going to be the only fool wearing a mask. And then, oh, loads of people wear a mask. And then everyone's wearing a mask. And all of a sudden you're going, I'm not going to be the only fool not wearing a mask. Yes, absolutely. So in the language of, of behavioral economics, we went from an uncooperative equilibrium to a cooperative equilibrium. And what we mean by that is that, somewhere around half or a little more than half of people are what are called conditional cooperators. So if we are in um, a collective action problem, which is what the wearing of masks is, so we're in a situation where we're all better off if we all do it, but it's a sacrifice for each of us individually to do it. If you're in those situations, somewhere around half, a little more than half of people are called conditional cooperators. That is, they'll do it provided everyone else is doing it. But if everyone else isn't doing it, they won't do it. And you then get some who are just the pure altruists or the do the right thing people. 
uh, who even if 80% of others are not doing it, if they think that it's the right thing to do and we all should be doing it, they will do it even though most of the other people are not. Then have a small proportion, probably around one in eight of us, who are instinctively in these circumstances selfish. And we have to be dragged screaming and kicking to do the right thing. So what happens is where you have a minority doing it, it's only that group who are going to do it anyway. And the conditional cooperators say, most people aren't doing this, so I won't. But as that starts to change, as the numbers start to creep up, more and more of those conditional cooperators start going, oh, actually, I think everyone else is going to start doing this, so maybe I need to start doing it. And as it became clear the public advice on masks was changing, and as it became clear they were likely to be mandated at some point, one of the interesting things was that the large majority of people started doing it before they became mandatory. It just steadily increased over a period of about two or three months from somewhere around 15, 20% of people wearing masks in shops, for example, to more than 80% of people wearing masks in shops before they were mandatory. And that's that exactly what you're talking about there. That is that cooperation that those kind of cooperative solutions to a collective action problem in action where you get the cooperative equilibrium dominating and it was previously the case that if you saw someone in the shop wearing a mask you might double take oh somewhere in a mask and now it's exactly the opposite that if you see someone in the shop not wearing a mask they get the double take so it really has changed we're very social creatures with these kind of problems so then if you take another coronavirus example, so one of the things that I was quite interested in, and it comes back to that first question I asked ages ago about why people do things that aren't good for them. Um, when I was looking into this, for example, in Italy, they, they, they publish seatbelt wearing uh, statistics. So at the point where, and maybe I was uh, making a correlation where there was none, but at the point where Italy had the worst uh, coronavirus uh, numbers in the world, I was looking at their statistics for wearing seatbelt are abysmal. And it just occurred to me, maybe as a nation, they're just not very good at doing things that are good for them. Again, boy, this for the same reason that people wouldn't wear a seatbelt, even though I think it's, well, as far as I can see, it's beyond dispute that it's a good idea. And people now know, for example, that going to a house party or having a big, I won't get political, having a big social gathering is a bad idea. So why is it still happening? So that's a big and complex question. So each one of these collective... (laughs) I made it seem very straightforward, Pete. Each one of these different collective action problems, whether it's holding house parties during a period where you're not supposed to, or whether it's wearing seatbelts here versus in Italy, there are multiple factors that feed into these things. And because of these collective action problems, as I keep calling them, these things where different people's outcomes depend on each other's behavior. So whether when we have an accident, I end up killing you depends on whether you put your seatbelt on and so on. So these kind of things where we have to coordinate our action to get the best social outcomes, they're highly unstable. Just as the masks example shows, actually, that you can get really large changes of behavior in quite short periods of time, provided the circumstances are right. So it really does depend on what those circumstances are, and there are many that feed in. Now, one of the problems with the house party situation is the people who are primarily doing that, and I think it's probably been exaggerated how many of them there are, by the way, from what I can see in the data, but there's certainly been some, and we object to it greatly. Those of us who are making the the sacrifice for the common good object to other people not doing very greatly. But a lot of the problem there, and the data are really interesting on this, it isn't actually that the people who are holding that house party don't care. They do. The problem is that young people have been absolutely clobbered during this pandemic psychologically. So if your happiness depends on your social and relationship life, this pandemic has been dreadful for you. We can see that in the data. The loss of well-being among young people is huge. It's been big for everyone, actually. I don't know. I've said this on a a bunch of occasions, but I'll, I'll say it again. When we measured this, on average, the well-being drop associated with coronavirus was the equivalent of the entire country being made unemployed at the same time. There's a really big, compared to normal times, so there's a really big well-being loss. We, we normally think that low well-being, the biggest drivers of it, bereavement, relationship breakdown and unemployment. And here we had a situation where, you know, the whole population had had the equivalent of being made unemployed. So there's a big well-being drop, but it was biggest among young people. Young adults suffered the largest drop, so it's huge well-being drops for them. And I think as the number of cases fell and the risk started to get quite low, and they've been deprived of so their social and relationship lives, the temptation to bust the regulations just became too great. And many of them cracked. Now, what's interesting is when you ask them about it, 
you ask young people who are breaking the regulations, they'll say, I am here and there, but they're trying not to still. They understand the situation they're in. They don't want to be doing it. They're like the smoker who doesn't want to smoke for long-term consequences, but it's going to have the fag anyway. They're just too tempted by it because of what they're being deprived of or because of what the immediate benefit is. If you're single and 23 and someone offers you the opportunity to go to a house party and you've hardly been out in three months, that's pretty tempting. <laughs> yeah, it is. In fairness, if I was there, I'd be gone like a rocket. It's very easy <laughs> when, you, when, when you're 40 and you have three small kids and you aren't going out anyway to go, young people well, today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but in terms of then how we... So part of, I think, the interesting thing about uh, our reaction to coronavirus is some of it is influenced by some people just don't like being told what to do, if I could put it like that. So as soon as the government, and it doesn't have to be the government, it's it's equally uh, if anyone tells them what to do. And I'm one of them. I haven't been that bad with with the coronavirus, but I just don't like being told what to do. Like when I was very young, I was 16 and I was working in a supermarket and I got a call over the tannoy to come to the manager and the manager brought me back to exactly where I was and asked me to do exactly what I was doing before he called me. Uh, And it just, it really annoyed me. I think I left a couple of days later. I was like, I don't need that. Is the messaging wrong or the way I know, why, why do we have to be told why do they have why do the guards have to have powers and sorry i'm asking all these questions as if you have the truth and the answer i know that's not how this works either but in your view do we have to have guardy having powers to to as a stick to make us do what's right for us well, I, I, th- I think i can shed some light on that so th- there are different ways that we're being told what to do we're being told what to do by the chief medical officer and by the guidelines and by the politicians who are then supporting the guidelines and the public officials supporting the guidelines. And often actually by our employers who are trying to implement them in workplaces and so on. So there are the kind of people who are pushing the guidelines. And then there's the people who are trying to help with the enforcement who we normally associate with law enforcement, like guards and so on. Now, those are two fundamentally different ways of being told what to do. If we face a massive collective action problem against this virus, like we do, where our only defense is to coordinate our behavior somebody's got to do the coordinating and the people who are doing the coordinating should probably be the people who best understand how the virus is spreading that just makes total sense to me and i think one of the reasons why in most countries people have been willing to sacrifice so much of their freedom is because they fundamentally they understand that that we have to coordinate our behavior someone's got to do it and doing it on the best scientific advice with our best experts is the best that we can do given we've got to do this we don't like giving up our freedoms we don't like being told how to live our lives but look what choice do we have in these circumstances now that's going to be less true in places that are more politically ideological where there are more libertarian people where there are more people who are very anti-government i mean that's obviously going to be harder to do in those kind of more polarized political contexts and we can discuss that if you like but i think that's just turned out to be true it's one of the reasons why the us and the uk have struggled so much to contain the pandemic compared to the other countries around them but you then get into the issue of okay if we accept that people have got to coordinate in telling us what to do well what about the people who are trying to enforce now this gets really interesting because in collective action problems as i've described some degree of punishment for people who don't toe the line actually turns out to be really important now the key to understanding this is that go back to those conditional cooperators the people who will only cooperate if they see that everyone else is doing they get really upset by free riders they get really upset by the people who are not doing what they're supposed to do quite understandably if i'm making the sacrifice and i'm going to all the trouble and someone else isn't being bothered it's bloody annoying it's like sitting in traffic and someone going up the bus lane beside you exactly it's infuriating you're delighted when they get caught delighted yes yes absolutely absolutely so some degree of that is important but interestingly what all of the we've studied problems like this for 30 40 years in behavioral science what all that behavioral science tells you is if that punishment is excessive people would react to it really quickly. So even if that person went up the bus lane and got caught, if you saw the guard being really aggressive with them and making them really upset, you would actually start to complain about what the guard was up to. You wouldn't like it, even though you were pissed off for the person in the bus lane. If the punishment becomes in any way disproportionate or heavy-handed, we also react to it really quite badly. 
So the science of this is really interesting, actually. We want to see a degree of punishment, even if it's just social disapproval, even if it's just the guard tutting at people, we want to see that happen because it keeps people in line. One of, the, one of the things that's been fascinating about this coronavirus thing, actually, you hear lots of chat in the media, why are the guards doing stuff if they haven't got enforcement powers anyway and if people can just lie to them? But actually, the funny thing is it changes behaviour anyway. People don't like lying to guards and they don't like being disapproved of by officialdom. Just being asked what they're doing and being reminded of the regulations does actually change behaviour because it makes people feel uncomfortable to break it and it makes them more convinced that others are doing it right and that therefore they've got to row in too. So I totally take your point. I'm, I would also classify myself as a person who really dislikes being told what to do. But where we have to coordinate our behaviour and where some people are misbehaving a proportionate degree of that and giving people the license and authority to do it for us is crucial. We've talked a lot about these, these coordinated problems or collective problems that we have to solve in a unitary fashion. I'm just wondering because we also spoke about the obesity problem and one of the things you would see quite a lot from people who are against masks or who are against certain um, coronavirus restrictions is more people are killed by X, Y or Z than coronavirus and we don't do anything about that. Now, I'm not accepting their argument, but I'm just extending it to, well, isn't the obesity a collective problem? And so should we not be tackling it in the same way that we are tackling coronavirus? Or would we as a collective just not go for it? I think it's a weaker collective problem. And let me explain what I mean by that. If I overeat and I end up catching diabetes and dying young, I do affect others around me. I affect my immediate family, probably, though not definitely, cost the health service a bit more. So I'm probably more expensive on taxpayers' money, although having died young, maybe not. So I do have an impact on the rest of the society around me, but it's not a very great impact. It's primarily an issue for me. The thing about the collective action problem of coronavirus is that really isn't true. Whether I catch this virus or not primarily doesn't depend on my behaviour. It depends on everyone else's behaviour. So I can try to keep myself safe, but if the virus becomes rampant and spreads right through society, and if our hospitals are overwhelmed, my survival chances are being dramatically affected by everybody else's behaviour. The, the question here is how much is it the case that we are having all having our outcomes driven by the rest of us, by others? And how much do we recognise that? How much do we see the problem in that light? And I think that gives you an idea of how different the two are yes there's a collective element to both and there's certainly a kind of societal policy issue surrounding obesity and i think that's particularly true of children where you know when you see kids who are obese at very young ages we really do run into interesting issues there about you know parental rights and the government's appropriate role and stuff that stuff gets really tense and interesting but nevertheless i i think there are different scales with which these are collective problems and what's amazing about the coronavirus is it is such a collective problem and it is a pure societal thing where the only solution we have is to coordinate our behavior that's the only game in town if we try to solve it individually we wouldn't survive yeah okay no that makes perfect sense so we just let the fatties be fat <laughs> okay, i'm being facetious and i will almost certainly edit that out but i was just thinking in terms of in my experience by the way just this is just as a by the way I was on radio for, I don't know, 15 years. You can say almost anything uh, and people won't really get that offended about it. But if you call someone ugly or fat, um, people get very offended very quickly, like on their behalf, just by the way. One of the things that I was interested in as well, in terms of habits, so we were told a lot in terms of our behavior. And this maybe is at the, the line between conscious behavior and decision and unconscious behavior that we, we touched on earlier. So people talk about good cough etiquette rather than habits, but good hand-washing habits is one in particular that people said, uh, and people trying to get out of the habit of touching their face. From a behavioral economic um, point of view, is there ways that you go about making those better habits or breaking those bad habits yes absolutely there's multiple studies we at the start of this pandemic we actually reviewed these and fed it into the policy space so i think we probably had some impact on the way some of the systems have evolved but where hand sanitizers are placed how prominent they are 
other kind of environmental interventions such as markings on floors these kinds of things yeah absolutely they have an effect the primary way that they have an effect is by grabbing our attention so the problem of habits is habits these fantastically efficient things we have them so we can free up our mental space to do the things we need to do to get the kids to school to get our work done to read the things we want to read to think about the things we want to think about we have to preciously guard our mental space by developing all these habits so that lots and lots of things don't invade them but this virus comes along and we've got to break a load of those habits so you have to grab people's attention and you then have to try and put in place environmental systems to help them build up better habits and that can be done and when it's done really well it's highly effective the example that I, I like to talk about is very early in the pandemic there was a hospital that got it absolutely right for me where you walked through the front door and it wasn't just they had a highly visible hand sanitizer station it was right in front of the door so you actually had to walk around it you had to actively avoid it but that they also put it in the most socially open space of the hospital so not only did you have to walk around it you couldn't say it didn't get your attention but you had to do that in a highly visible space so that other people could see you do it and then when you went up to the reception what then happened was you were just asked a polite question before you ever could hand over your letter oh did you use the hand sanitizer now from a behavioral point of view for breaking habits and putting in place new habits that's about the most perfect system i could imagine it grabs your attention it takes the social forces that help to form habits in the first place and act, makes them act in the right direction. And then it reinforces them by asking a question afterwards that also grabs attention and uh, uses social disapproval as a potential weapon to get people to change their behavior next time. And I say next time because I saw people actually lying to the receptionist and saying, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> well, <laughs> when they're, no, I when they're But now that didn't change their behavior on that occasion. But I can absolutely tell you that when they then went to use the lift, where there was another bottle of hand sanitizer, they then used it. I so, was going to ask um, that exact question and, and what that says or if it says anything about that person, because I can tell you 100 percent certain if I was asked that question, I would have lied straight away and quite convincingly, I think, that, oh, yeah, did you? So, Why do we do that? <laughs> Is that just well, pure, we don't want people to, we can lie so easily. Yes, we can, but we don't like doing it. It makes us feel very uncomfortable. So the next time you walk into that hospital, chances are, even if you'd lied the first time, you will use the hand sanitizer. Or as I say, you'll use it when you go to the lift on the way to the room you've been sent to. It's just using those social forces in a way that gets beyond the habit and breaks the habit and tries to put in place new ones. And if you're going to break habits, that's what you've got to do. You've got to break through into people's consciousness, but you've also got to organize the physical and social environment in such a way to support the new habit. That's, now, that's not, sorry, I was just, that's not always true. That, it, that's often true in behavioral studies. And you mentioned hand washing, so that's why I brought it up. Sometimes habits just change much more naturally than that, just because a shock to the system allows it to happen. So that will probably have happened as a result of coronavirus. And in some cases, badly, some people will got into a habit of driving to work who previously wouldn't have driven to work and will continue that habit afterwards, which is bad for the rest of us because it imposes externalities of traffic and pollution on the rest of us. But sometimes that can actually work in our favor. So there are classic studies that show that after you know particular traffic problems or public transport strikes and this kind of stuff where people changed their commuting habits quite high proportion of them then permanently changed that commuting habit even when things return to normal and the strike is over and all of the systems are back up and running and the reason this happens is because you know they were doing stuff that was habitual they didn't want to have to think about it too much so they never tried they never experimented tried different ways of getting to work and they suddenly discovered actually that it was a much nicer way of doing it that their habits never allowed them to experiment with and now they have experimented with it that then becomes a habit because it's a nice way of doing it and then after that they won't think about it again for a while so habits can sometimes be shocked out of us but usually you have to change the social and you, you, someone doesn't just have to want to change that habit. You have to change the social and the physical environment around people to support it. I found that quite interesting in, in, in my chats that I, people that I spoke to just Joe, Joe public as I'll call them seemed quite uh, reluctant to make environmental changes as a way of changing their behavior. And I think it seems to me that seems like to them seemed like a cop-out like they should they wanted to be able to rely on their willpower rather than kind of trickery of changing their environment 
have you any idea on why we would think like that or would that be a common thing that like people seem very attached to their willpower as i i can do this that's something that's within their control or that they it's a challenge that they want to be able yeah, to do it's a really common thing one of the great things about studying what i study at least i think it's a great thing is it's just such a huge challenge to your liberalism I would consider myself philosophically to be pretty liberal. I'm a believer in free choice. I would probably support most of what would generally be considered to be liberal causes. I come from a family that would see liberal progress and throwing off of old traditional values and power structures as being a really important thing. And a lot of what comes with that kind of political perspective is this real respect for freedom of choice and belief in freedom of choice. And we live in a free society that has elevated the notion of free choice very highly. Um, and people prize their freedom of choice. And one of the things that studying what I study shows you is that a lot of it's quite illusory, that we make decisions for reasons we don't actually fully understand or appreciate. And we have less freedom of choice than we think. <laughs> when you put that in front of people, they can find it really quite discomforting. I've had the luxury of learning that lesson over a period of, you know, 20 or 30 years of study, <laughs> where it slowly and very steadily dawns on you as finding after finding shows that an awful lot of freedom of choice is illusory, that this is the case. And that doesn't mean your political liberalism is somehow wrong. You know, that may still be a very powerful and important set of principles on which to organize society, to have decentralized choice and freedom of choice and so on. It's just facts about the way we are. So if you want to understand how to change your habits, understanding how strongly influenced you are by the social and physical environment is first base. That's where you've got to get to if you understand the behavioral science of this. Now, if you have a political objection to it, you're going to really struggle. But I can understand why that political objection is there, because for so long, people have argued about how incredibly important freedom of choice is, and you're essentially coming along and saying, actually, you don't have as much as you think you do. Yeah, or yeah, I don't know. It just, it seems like, I would have said it uh, to my wife. She's going to kill me after she listens to this podcast because it sounds like I'm giving out about her the whole time. But like when we were trying to control my eating or drinking habits, I would say to her, you're going to have to go and do the shopping because if I go to the shopping, I can tell you I'm going to come back with a trolley full of crap. Uh, and that would just jarred with her, not because I was asking her to do the shopping, but she was because she doesn't have the same response to the same triggers she can go to the shops and not come back with a trolley full of crap and she can't understand why i can't do you know what i mean yeah i think that's true i think there's lots of examples of that within society generally for example society's intolerance of addiction i think is really interesting from that point of view people who don't have problems with addiction find it incredibly hard to understand why can't they just stop you know, we have this idea that one can simply make that choice. Why can't you just make that choice? So why can't you just not buy the crap? And why can't you just stop smoking? Why can't you just stop drinking or taking this drug or whatever it happens to be? And it is a failure to understand how people make decisions and what influences those decisions. So yeah, a lot of the science that I do is trying to get more evidence into this space. Now, this is not to give you the excuse not to go shopping, incidentally. <laughs> well, no, well, I just, just as a last thing then before I let you go, because I'm personally curious about it. And we touched on it earlier with the garage example, but like, why can't I, assumed I can if I use pretty much all the willpower I have for the day and I'm, you know, determined to make progress or whatever else. But it is such an effort to not pick up a bag of this and a packet of those and a bottle of this. It is an unbelievable amount of willpower that it takes for something yeah. that probably shouldn't take that much willpower. Well, you say shouldn't. Where does that should come from? That's the liberal thing I'm talking about. That's the kind of way we've been brought up to think about freedom of choice. People differ within themselves as well as between people. It's definitely true that some people 
you know, struggle more with temptation in different domains than others, whether it's food or drink or whatever it happens to be. So some people are better at resisting the temptation than others. But we also change ourselves over time. There's a lot of evidence that shows if you shop when you're hungry, you'll buy far more food than if you shop when you're not. There are tips and tricks we can give people to help them. One of them is shop when you've just eaten. Another is the idea of being very disciplined in writing a list and only getting what's on the list. There are things that you can do to give yourself self-imposed constraints in the way you go about things that mean you're less likely to go and, as you put it, buy the crap. But all of those things undermine your freedom of choice. You have to accept that your freedom of choice is limited and that you are prey to these influences in order to use those kind of techniques. So one of the things that's very interesting about the notion of, of habit is anyone who really wants to change their habits has got to, if they're going to get to that first base and really get going, has got to accept that isn't actually how they make decisions, that they don't make it on some kind of you know, rational, conscious basis where they've thought it through, even if they think they don't. Yeah, it's, it is. It's so fascinating. I could talk to you for hours because when you're in it, when you're saying, I'm a dad of young kids, I want to be around for a long time, it feels like the motivation is there. It feels like everything is lined up, that this should be a no-brainer. Uh, and then you come back home from the shops and you're like, maybe I don't care about my kids as much as all I did. This tastes lovely. It's a hard one, I think, when you actually start. One of the things I think that's difficult is when you actually start to try and do some of this stuff. Failing is obviously hard and, and it brings them all together. The lack of feeling like you, you don't have the willpower that you I'll use the word I used a second ago, should, uh, that you can't resist the things you should, that you're not doing the things you should. Uh, and even though no one's watching you, then that, that, that word should, I'm just realizing, brings all the social pressure that we talked about earlier it, 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 on top of you yourself. You're like, I'm not doing what I should be doing. And as you say, where does the should come from? I agree. And I, I think I'd go even further than that, actually, because I think for many people where that should comes from, has mental health consequences except one of the reasons i like the science that i do is because i think actually even though it takes a bit of a leap of faith and it's a little bit scary having a more realistic view of your own psychology and how you actually make decisions and how vulnerable you are in particular environments and how much control you really have and how much uncertainty you really face my own view is that if you go about that the right way that's actually very positive accepting how much control you really do have and understanding that better i think on balance while it's a bit scary is a positive thing and that should monster that is in people's heads can make them feel terribly guilty and upset and can lead to real genuine mental health consequences where they're trying to fight behaviors that in battles they are never going to win so i think as time goes on one of the things i love about my discipline is that we're understanding more and more of that and I think that is now bleeding through to things like teaching children resilience and teaching people, you know, better mental tips and tricks to get themselves through the challenges that life throws. I think that stuff is becoming much better grounded in good science and good psychology. And we're all a lot better off when it is. Excellent. And um, Pete, I've loved listening to you on the radio for years. I've loved talking to you even more. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for agreeing to it. Uh, it was really interesting. I'm going to have now spend the rest of the day figuring, I don't know what I'm going to be thinking for the rest of the day in my head spinning. <laughs> I can only imagine <laughs> what it's like doing this stuff day in, day out. <laughs> I did, I've just seen the time and realized how long we've been talking for, but no, I, re I really enjoyed the conversation and your questions are great. So thanks very much. Uh, pleasure. Pete, have a great day. You too. Take thanks, it easy. Bye now. So I hope you learned something interesting from Peace today. Uh, I know I took a huge amount away from um, the interview when I did it uh, live uh, and I've um, just kind of reminded myself of a lot of them having listened back to it again. Um, so as always, thank you very much for listening to the Habits Habit podcast. Coming up soon, we have uh, an interview with one of the leading researchers in habit research in the world, um, which is really interesting. Uh, and we also have great interviews from Brezzy, uh, from... Um, Keith Barry and loads loads more uh, I'll post more on the website now it's at thehabitshabit.com or for short go habits.ie and you will find us um, and we'll have another episode for you next Friday